You're listening to the Crowdfunding Nerds Podcast, a podcast that will help you succeed before, during, and after your crowdfunding event. And now, here is your host, Andrew Lowen. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another awesome episode of Crowdfunding Nerds. I am your fearless leader, Andrew Lowen, and on this episode, we are diving into a more business-focused topic, which is really what I call the five things. I, I've Over the course of 12 years, so longer than a decade of managing my business, I have dealt with many, many clients. I would say well over 600 clients. And in the beginning of my own effort, I was mentored by someone that was a very successful business coach, ran the marketing program at Lockheed, which was like $3 billion a year. And I thought, this guy seems like a good guy to, to coach me. He taught me the five areas that you really need to focus on to increase your business. And you know, a lot of people are focused on the bottom line, but there's very little that you can actionably do when you're focused on how much profit did we make? You know, what was our what what did we keep after we spent all on taxes and work and whatever? You know, for your board game, you need obviously to have hopefully something left over after you've fulfilled your project for the next project or to pay your rent or whatever it is, right? And that's kind of the wrong area to focus. And so we really wanted to do a little bit more of a business-focused podcast on what areas you should be focusing on, the five areas, and actionable advice for how to positively impact each one of the areas. And I'm joined, as always, by Sexy Irish Sean and SEO Wizard Rick. And um, I was informed by Sean before the start of this podcast that when I say, what's up, nerds, we usually end up digressing for like 30 minutes about something stupid that ends up getting cut uh, from the podcast <laughs> anyway. So I was just wanted to ask, like, Sean, what types of things have you had to listen to that our audience <laughs> has never heard? digressions on reality tv shows a lot of stuff on world of warcraft i've had to cut out <laughs> do you guys listen to the episodes i do after i publish it i don't listen to it. i publish it and then after i publish it, i hit the play button just to make sure it's all good but um yeah i'm a really bad uh ui tester or whatever they call it uh i, I test after i publish <laughs> you know i i like to listen because you know they say you retain the most amount of knowledge by teaching it's weirdly enough one of my favorite podcasts to listen to because i'm like oh that's right oh yeah that's right and i'm always reminded of <laughs> things are that, amazing. that i should know <laughs> <laughs> i i always hate hearing my voice so i like listening to when we have other people on <laughs> i always cringe when i hear sexy irish sean it's like oh it's a cringy nickname yeah my wife cringes <laughs> yep he's taking ladies so andrew what are these these magical ways? I know you briefly talked about it, but why did they inspire you? And I mean, I'm assuming they work because you're going to talk about them. So yeah. uh, what's going on with those? Yeah. So a lot of the time in business, no matter what kind of business it is, if it's a product business, uh, a focused business like board games or, you know, even a board game Kickstarter or a service based business like being a plumber or a mechanic, it doesn't matter. But people tend to always hone in on three things. They focus on their customers how much money they're making and how much profit they retain at the end of the day. Those things all matter a lot, but you can't really impact the, you know, you can't just say, Oh, I don't have enough customers. And then, you know, pull a couple more customers off the shelf. I mean, there's a formula for customers. You've got the number of leads that you get into your business multiplied by the conversion rate. So let's say I'm a mechanic, two people come in asking for an estimate on their car. I close one of them. My conversion rates 50%. I had two leads with a 50% conversion rate. That gives me one customer. So 
you know, on your Kickstarter campaign, you've got thousands of people coming if if your campaign is being marketed and reviewers are talking about it and that kind of thing. You're going to get a lot of eyeballs on your campaign. These are all what I would call leads in some form. People that you acquire via email and, you know, would be like a hard lead. But how many of those will you convert? Then you've got the revenue in your company is determined by your customers, which we talked about is your leads times your conversion rate. So your revenue would be your customers times your average dollar sale to those customers times the number of transactions. You know, if you've got a board game, you know, maybe you can increase the average dollar sale by giving them a deluxe edition, or maybe you can give them add-ons or other things like that, which would increase not only your average dollar sale per customer, but also the number of transactions per customer. And there are other things as well. And then of course, you know, you have to factor in your expenses. So your revenue multiplied by your actual margin, you know, a lot of the time you would spend half of anything that you make on the actual production of the thing uh, that gives you your profit at the end of the day. So what we wanted to do is really kind of dial in on each one of these things and talk about how do you get leads? How do you increase your conversion rate and, and so on and so forth and apply those things specifically in terms of board game Kickstarters, because it would be a lot of fun to talk about. I don't know how many mechanics listen to this show, but I'm pretty sure people looking to launch a Kickstarter, you know, a board game Kickstarter outnumber those people. So what do you guys think? So this overview, we have leads multiplied by conversion rate customers, customers multiplied by transactions equals revenue. Average, average dollar sale as well. Revenue multiplied by margin equals profit. Yes. So, I mean, it does sound a little weird. However, think of this as like your website sales funnel for your business. There's different sections of your funnel where people will fall off. You know, most people usually focus, businesses usually focus on only one aspect of the funnel. For example, oh no, they're not coming in the door. Oh, I need to get more people in the door. I need to focus on more leads. However, the other things included, like for example, conversion is another one. Maybe you don't need as many people coming through the door if you can actually get them to buy your product or then the product profit or the different types of products. So that's another part of the funnel and you work your way down and it's almost practically like a numbers game. And what's cool is if you increase these different sections of your funnel, you're not just incrementally increasing your profit. You're almost exponentially increasing your profit because you're actually increasing it in different multiple parts of your funnel. And this is also really important in overall, like when you have a business, eventually you need to figure out what your the lifetime value of your customer is. Because once you figure that number out, you could actually figure out how much it costs to get them through and get your product. And then you can figure out how much you can spend on ads and still make a profit. And literally, once you get those numbers figured out, like using this funnel, then you can literally just turn on the, the payment switch to your, 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 your advertising media systems, whoever mm -hmm. you use for your advertising media, and they send the people through you and they go right through the funnel and you just make your profit. So that's also a really important aspect of this funnel, I believe, as well. And that's kind of the key, I think, to the whole, well, the reason for our podcast is because it's oftentimes our clients are so focused on getting leads. You know, that's why they hire us because they they want email leads, they want to grow their email list so that their conversion or so that their Kickstarter will be like off the hook and you know, it, they want to give it its best possible chance to make as much money as it as it possibly can. Or they um, they dig into a, a certain we give certain benchmarks. So we say you can assume a 10% conversion rate of your email list and then some clients already hold on to that as if it's that's 
definitely going to happen. And then they're like, oh, I need to get so many more leads in order to fund. It's like, well, yeah. it's, it's not that simple. <laughs> right. Let's just define a lead. A lead is very, I guess, broad brush stroke, but the uh, for us you know with our clients it's often up to us to tell the client this is what a lead is but in, at the end of the day you know somebody that joins your email list because they were interested in your in your game or somebody who would actually let's say express interest a lot of the time these can be people that would join your community like facebook or discord or whatever you might not have their name on a list with the permission to send them an email but they are definitely leads because uh, they're people that are interested in your product. The conversion rate you know, of those leads might vary based on your location and, and that kind of thing. But before we talk about the quality of these various lead sources, let's talk about the leads themselves. How, how do you get leads? You buy them. <laughs> you buy them. Buy them. <laughs> I think leads actually, we, it's, it's more of a two category type thing. There are two types of leads, really. I mean, leads is very general. So I would say that there are two types of leads. You have the, pretty much anyone who sees any of your advertising at all is considered a lead because they saw it. And then you have, you know, a different category lead where it's someone who actually shows interest and like fills in the email. So I think leads has a couple things. So pretty much as soon as someone sees your product, that's almost considered, I mean, I don't know if there's another word for it. But I call it a lead. soft lead. Yeah, soft yeah. lead, soft lead, like hard lead, soft lead, because they are have been introduced to your brand. Yep. So, and that's why, you know, big marketing companies, that's why banner ads are still around, even though those are like, no one clicks on them anymore. But it's just the act, act of actually seeing, you know, the little bullseye or whatever uh, symbol that you're used to, the little yeah. coffee mermaid or whatever. It's just the act of reinforcing your brain. There's, you know, the brand is still there. It's still showing, it's still showing. So that would be what, you know, yeah. So soft lead would be mm -hmm. that. And then of course, in our case, when it comes to board games, our, our job for pre-marketing is to get, you know, get that email address to get that communication going and open up different areas and axes of communication about your product. So that would be considered the, the more harder lead. So yeah, I think a lead is anyone who actually sees anything about your product. And you know, um, we've talked about kind of soft and hard where soft would be somebody who may decide to click on your banner ad you know, but it's their choice. And then you've got the hard lead, which gave you their email address. So you're actually going to solicit them in the future for, to click through to your Kickstarter project. So you've got hard and soft or soft and hard respectively, but then you've also got hot and cold, right? So you've got hot leads and cold leads. Hot leads are people that have really, really been warmed up through, through your funnel. So they, they come in and they see your product for the first time. That would, to me be a cold lead. If somebody subscribed to your email list and you know after seeing your product and then didn't see you again until your launch day, unless your launch day is just a few days away, I actually think that that's a really, really big waste of money. A cold lead is not something that you wanna spend a lot of money on. You, you want, you know, that's why we place such effort and emphasis on warming those leads up, which again is all about conversion rate. So I guess I'm kind of blending in conversion right here but you know you've got your your cold lead who just saw you once and then your hot lead who not only have they seen you here there and everywhere but they're also very very excited and probably one of your biggest fans it really matters as far as how you treat leads we talked about you know sean you mentioned pay for those leads so you know just share some of the places that you that you might be that you might consider to to pay to get those leads where would they come from so facebook is probably the most obvious one. If you have a board game, something like Board Game Geek, when your campaign's live, could be a Facebook group, 
Reddit, YouTube, anywhere where your people frequent, you can yep. then pay to access that demographic of people to then take action. I also think reviewers are a big one as well. You know, the influencers, you know, you might call them influencers, get a place like the Dice Tower or Man vs. Meeple or Quackalope or whatever that will review your board game. It, they're, they're speaking to their audience, which is uh, your audience too. So yeah, that's a good point. Another thing to look at, and this actually applies to the entire funnel here, is using multiple streams of marketing as well as split testing. Because, you know, everyone usually sticks to the main, like, you know, people will put up their Facebook ads, but your Facebook pool, even though Facebook is humongous, your pool only will be so big. And after a while, you will have exhausted your pool and then your conversion rate starts dropping. So then, of course, you want to check out these different avenues. And in fact, what's great is you could check, you could test them out, you know, at the same time uh, using tracking codes. And then, of course, you could, you know, if you spot a really good winner, you push more money into it. If something's not performing as well, then you, you pull back. And if something's performing good, you just keep it running. And by doing this and then keep bringing in different streams of advertising in, you can actually test out to see. It's a great way of expanding your leads as well as increasing the um, flow of your funnel. I'm just looking at a, an article here. Top 10 protests that save TV shows from cancellation. It shows the importance of that community of those of those customers of, of really warming up your leads because not many people know that Star Trek was actually headed for cancellation. Its ratings were low. They changed the time slot. And it was the fans who stood up and protested that kept kept it on on the air. And you know, it's become one of the most popular TV series of all time. And this article has has a couple. Family Guy apparently was under some heat. Futurama, Jericho. So there's a couple here. Firefly, Roswell, even. So it shows you the importance of having a community that loves your brand. <laughs> oh yeah, including like even it even goes to other things. Like for example, my favorite fast food places, Taco Bell, and they. Decided, decided they want to remove the potatoes from their menu. And, and they also wanted to remove my Mexican pizza, which I was really upset about. And so, of course, all these people were doing these little these little protests. But the potatoes came back because of it. However, my Mexican pizza did not. I'm still a little upset about that. So let's, let's kind of segue into conversion rate because... Number of leads times conversion rate equals the amount of customers that you have. And uh, that, that would a customer, by the way, would be somebody who buys what you have. So when you convert a customer, we're not talking about you convert someone so that they jump onto your email list. We, we're talking about you have your email list and you actually convince a portion of those people to buy what it is that you are offering. So, you know, like you were saying, Rick, you know, there are different places that you can go to find your customers. And I would say that, you know, depending on some of the places that you go, you might find hot leads at, you know, just by accessing the right circles. You're going to have a, a ton of people that are really excited about your game if they're super into hobby board games and they like the theme already. Um, this is oftentimes why we start with with our Facebook ads uh, with a new client. For people that would that we would consider like slam dunks, you know, um, for me, you know, when, when I get somebody to go to a landing page, it, you know, it costs money to get that person to get there unless you're, you know, marketing on on like in a Facebook group or something, maybe you pay via Facebook ads to get somebody to go to your landing page, costs money to get that person there, they're a lead. If they were super duper interested in what it is that you like your theme or, or whatever already, they're going to be very interested to read more of your landing page rather than, you know, somebody who's, let's say, interested in board games only, but you have no idea what kind of board gamer they are. It would be a more expensive 
or rather a lower conversion rate for somebody that's less interested. They're going to read less. They're going to, you know, not be willing to shell out money for something like that. Uh, whereas somebody who is just really loves the theme and, you know, and everything would. And I think that that plays into your conversion rate for your email list too. How do you build your email list and what type of people are on your email list? You know, we talk about that, like you said, Sean, like 10% conversion rate, you know, we, it's really like 10 to 15% is what we typically see. But if it's your mom and like your business networking group and your friends and whatever, your conversion rate for your email list might not actually be that high when it comes to your live Kickstarter. Or if you're talking to people who or maybe on the fringes of the interest that you your product actually is involved in, yeah. like if you reach more people, you might get them to convert, but will they be as dedicated? Mm -hmm. and that's why with our targeting, we usually start super specific and then we broaden as we go. Right. And I think that the real key here, you know, there are certain things that we can do as marketers, like, hey, you know, we can target the right people or whatever. But really, I think that the the best way to get a Kickstarter to to absolutely do it's best possible, you know, I guess it's uh, or to perform at its very best is to get an organic group of people that are so excited that they're going to do all of your marketing for you. You know, they're just going to tell everybody, uh, tell the whole neighborhood about your game. How do you do that? What's the secret? <laughs> so there's this thing that I call the virtuous cycle, which is so core to what it is that we do. You basically win the right to communicate with people across as many mediums as possible so that somebody who joined your email list is also going to, you know, they found you, uh, your landing page, get them into your Facebook group, into your Discord, onto that uh, notify me on launch for, uh, for Kickstarter. And I would say those things getting just getting more exposure you know it's all it's like uh as they say in marketing touches if somebody hears the same message from you seven different times in seven different ways across seven different mediums they're going to be much more open to what it is that you're that you're selling just because they've heard about you a lot and they are finally interested i had people that saw you know that were in my facebook group that were also in my discord server that played my tabletop simulator and that finally ended up buying something because of a Facebook ad. That was the thing that they clicked on and bought. I often wonder, you know, because often you see on Kickstarters, you get a lot of backers from direct traffic. And I wonder how many of those people were actually influenced by paid advertising to, to eventually back. You know, it's impossible to tell, but I mentioned mm -hmm. there was some type of time machine where you could do <laughs> one project. <laughs> With paid advertising, one to get one without, and to see the difference in the direct yep. uh, backers. Because I, I, I certainly think that paid advertising influences those. It, those leads. it does very much so. I mean, there's there's a uh, a lot of the time with our clients. You know, when I uh, we we share data with clients and say, oh, this many people jumped on your email list. Here are how many people that clicked, and so on and so forth. But um, a lot of what I noticed, for example, I'll just speak about myself when I had deliverance rolling, I built my deliverance community organically over a period of two years. And I, you know, I would go to conventions, I would, you know, like local events, I would, um, you know, talk in Facebook groups and other things like that. And I remember that, my, you know, my goal was like one person a day into my Facebook group or my email list. And if it was the same person that jumped on the email list and the Facebook group. I counted that as two. So it's, you know, that was just my goal. But when I turned my ads on, when I turned my Facebook ads on, 
I saw a marked increase in the amount of people not only joining the Facebook group, but contributing and talking in the Facebook group. It was huge, huge, huge for our momentum. And I think that actually when we turn on our ads, it really reactivated a lot of the dormant people that found us like two years ago, but kind of fell off because, you know, I mean, you can only stay a fan of something so long before you're like, if you don't have something to buy or or some action to take, you you kind of cool off, right? And I remember as well, some people, like I was in some Facebook groups and people would actually screenshot the ad and say, oh, this looks interesting. So they've, they've shared your ad with, through a screenshot organically in a group and then everyone's having a discussion about it. And then, you know, inevitably the link is going to show up in the comments and people will probably jump on that and back, but you can't track that. But clearly mm -hmm. just your ad had brought in a lot of leads. Right. And I think that the conversion rate, you know, getting one person to let's, let's talk about the Kickstarter page, right? Like when, when, okay, so you've got your email list and you get leads there and then you convert a certain amount of people. We actually talked about how many people were converted for the deliverance campaign. I had 21.3% of my email list actually convert and and back my uh, project. These were the people that were like within three months of launch that joined my email list uh, from ads. And then, you know, you look back further, it's like, hey, all the people before that three month period of time, it was like 17% of those people ended up converting, 16.9, I think. And then we looked at what happened during the live Kickstarter. And instead of a, you know, we call it the lead, instead of like an email subscriber, a lead was just somebody who made it to the Kickstarter page. We looked at Google Analytics and figured out how much actual traffic did, like went to the site. And we got like 56,000 people or something, 56,000 visits in a month, unique visitors um, to the Kickstarter page. I think that's what it was. And we had whatever it was back, you know, 2,700 and something. So we looked at the conversion rate for like the first two days, the last two days, the mid campaign and kind of, you know, figured out, you know, how many of those people ended up backing the game. And so, it, you know, it was much low. It's a much lower conversion rate than people straight from the email list. But, you know, it's kind of a kind of it was interesting to, to do all that. And Sean, you put together conversion rates for a couple of different campaigns. Um, yes. Yeah. So what we were trying to figure out was what is the percentage of conversion What's the conversion rate at the beginning of the campaign, the mid campaign, the end end of the campaign? This is a bit challenging to work out because a lot of board game campaigns they either fund or they don't. So if you don't fund the first forty eight hours, you know you're not going to have a middle end end campaign. Really, the conversions mm -hmm. there would be, be skewed. So yeah, most of it's happening at the beginning of the campaign. But what's the ratio between the beginning, mid, and end? So the conversion rate on deliverance for the first two days was eight point four percent. Which is pretty good and then the mid campaign was 3.2 and the last two days was 10.9 so you actually had the highest conversion rate the last two days mm -hmm. of the campaign so the first two days of my campaign we got 13,611 unique visitors to the actual kickstarter page and we had 1152 backers in the first two days um, and that's where that 8.4 percent conversion rate came from 13,000 and 13 and a half thousand people went there 11 and whatever 1152 people ended up backing and that's why we got that conversion rate of 8.4 percent so then the mid campaign it really really drops you know that people are a lot of people are hitting the follow button and 
not necessarily backing. There are other projects. I, I remember every Tuesday when, you know, hot Kickstarter projects would launch. It was the worst. I It drove me crazy because I would see like, you know, 75 new backers and 65 cancellations. Uh, you know, I was like, ah, oh, dang it. Um, and, you know, but we were always positive, you know, we we're always net positive, but it was just, it was more frustrating because, you know, great projects were launching and, um, you know, pulling some people away. And that's just the way it is. You know, people will, will drop to a dollar and then, you know, hit the follow button and reevaluate the last couple of days. And I was happy to, you know, I'm happy to see that we had nearly 11% conversion rate on our last two days, which is super high compared to anything else in the campaign. And I think that that's because we found ways to get people to get off the fence and actually jump into the campaign. The excitement of the last two days really kind of pulled people in and uh, encouraged them to to take the leap, you know, to, to actually convert. And um, so I think that those numbers are very interesting to um, to look at, you know, considering the kind of the topic of our conversation today. So we've talked about conversion rates and customers. So when it comes to transactions and increasing those transactions, you do this through different pledge levels, but then also through the pledge manager where you can offer additional things. I know, Andrew, you offer t-shirts and uh, other mm -hmm. things like that. Do you want to talk a bit about that? Sometimes I thought that deliverance was just a, a thing to sell t-shirts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that ended up being really popular. Hey. Those um, t-shirts are phenomenal. I gotta say that's some that is some of the best t-shirts. In fact, I was at a theme park. I was at a theme park last week and I bought a like $50 t-shirt. I won't tell you which one because you know it. <laughs> <laughs> and the quality of it was crap. So they must have made like $49 off of, you know, on pure profit off of me for that $50 t-shirt. Andrew's deliverance t-shirts, my goodness, they're breathable. They feel great. You wash them, they last forever. Yep. My intent for the t-shirts was always a marketing investment. It's like Facebook ads. That's what I used. Uh, that, that was basically an investment that I made so that I could have people walking around with my name that were passionate about my product. You know, I figured if somebody spent 20 bucks or whatever on a t-shirt, they are going to spend whatever on the actual game itself, right? Because they're a fan of the game. They've decided it's almost like they made their decision that they are going to back the game. And here's the deposit, which is a t-shirt um, that they get to walk around with. And, and so we ended up doing that before the campaign, which I actually advise a lot of people against doing that uh, because you don't want to make the focus of your campaign about anything other than the game itself. But we had people that were clamoring for T-shirts when we were about to launch our game. And we were, we were like, you know, scrambling for design ideas and that kind of thing like a month before the campaign launched because the community really wanted it. I think that it, it really did, became a, it really did become a, a good moneymaker for us. Another thing I say about the shirts is that, you know, you, you said they're also used for your marketing. And it's certainly worked because you have Sam Healy, who was on Crackalope recently, and he was flaunting, I don't know if he was flaunting, but he was flaunting uh, his the deliverance t-shirts, right? which is pretty cool. And you didn't ask yeah. him to do that. That's just it's the shirt he decided to wear that day. Right, right. And I, I think that, you know, it's partially because the shirt is so comfortable. It's a gaming t-shirt, you know, and, and that kind of thing. And also it's a thing that Sam really likes. I, I'm really honored to have uh, Sam as such a, a big advocate for us. And, um, but you're right. You know, it's just one of those things that, ended up working out really well. And the only reason that that happened was 
you know, going back to your conversion rate and other elements that, you know, it's just your community influences so much of what you should be doing. You should be listening to your community, pitching ideas to your community. I mean, sometimes the community says, I don't like this idea. So yeah, as far as the average dollar sale and the number of transactions, there's one, they're, they're really interrelated with board game Kickstarters. The, I want to talk about the number of transactions first, because this is one thing that a lot of people are very short-sighted when they are in their, um, uh, you know, kind of their marketing their game and they're spending money on things like Facebook ads for email leads and whatnot. The number of transactions is is like the number of Kickstarters that somebody supports you. I, you know, I had my deliverance Kickstarter. I'll have another Kickstarter eventually. And I've got all of those emails that I, and all of the money that I spent on the first, you know, the first go round, you know, my 2,700 backers, my whatever, 4,000 and there's like 4,400 emails and all of that that I generated from the first Kickstarter campaign, that is going to be there to to work with on the next Kickstarter campaign. And if I do a good job, you know, working with my community, talking with them, keeping them updated and generally making them fans of the game, of me, of my, you know, business practices, they're, they're going to stick around and support the next one. You know, a portion of them are. So that's one critical thing to think about is, you know, the value of your marketing is exponential if you have future offerings, you know, because you're building your email list is not just for this individual project. It's your company's email list that you have for your next project. I think that's super duper important to consider. But, you know, going back to this other element, you know, we we talked about the average dollar sale. So I had my my deliverance campaign uh, to use that as just you know, always as firsthand example, $59 retail uh, edition base game. It's not even a retail edition. It's a base game. Or you can buy the $89 deluxe edition. The deluxe edition, I make more money. Uh, you know, the, as far as like margin wise, I make um, a little bit, a little bit more. Then I have add-ons. So you, you've got the neoprene mat, you've got metal coins, and then these t-shirts. The idea is that, you know, my all-in and acrylic standees, acrylic glass standees, uh, and minis and all of that. But um, the all-in version of Deliverance was $149. And then I actually had two pledge levels that I thought were crazy high. One at $749, which included a full set of painted miniatures. And then another one at $1,500, which was like I gave a, a prototype copy of the game away and gave them an original piece of art, uh, that kind of thing. And that is, I mean, that was just, you know, very high, but I, I worked with my community. I pulled my community. I talked with the my Facebook group and my Discord server. We talked and they were like, you know, some people were like, yeah, I would support you at this pledge level. Or, you know, and the reason the $749 pledge level came up was somebody was like, you know, I'd really love to support the game, but I'm not going to shell out 1500 If there was something that was like half that expensive, you know, that included the painted minis, I'd be down for that. And I worked it out and we figured out we can do that. Your number of transactions and your the average spend per transaction doesn't just start and stop at Kickstarter. In fact, uh, maybe you could quickly talk about how uh, BackerKit has mm-hmm. uh, increased your average spend in transactions as well. Absolutely. So right now, just as so we raised three hundred fourteen thousand dollars on Kickstarter, and you know, looking at BackerKit, 
we've raised another r- roughly like $71,000 more on Backerkit. And we actually have a Facebook ad budget that spends every day to send people to Backerkit and get people to to back. Our, our main campaign that's working is about $13.78 to get somebody to purchase. So our return on ad spend, we're earning about three times whatever we're spending. Is that profitable at that point? Because I know sometimes you've got to- It's like 3 point, it's actually 3.4 to 5. 3.43 for one ad and then 5.10 for the other. So, you know, we spend like, let's say like $50 and we're earning $250 off of that spend. Which is absolutely worthwhile. Uh, let me ask you this. This was actually asked today by one of our clients. He wanted to know was, because he's working out his profit margin for his current campaign with Kickstarter. Mm-hmm. And he wanted to know, number one, was deliverance profitable? And two, mm-hmm. how profitable was it? And I don't know how specific you want to get or if you have any, any data to share. But I know that mm-hmm. do you include all the artwork in that and all the man hours that have to go into it? Or how, how do you define profitability and when you define it was deliverance actually profitable that is a great question and that actually kind of leads us into the last element was you know you have to factor in your expenses and that sort of thing so you know when when you get your revenue you know your number of customers times how much they spend multiplied by how many times they spend it gives you your revenue so you know we we raised the total of let let's just say you know, we'll stick with the Kickstarter number, 2,717 backers raised a total of $314,375. So what happened with that money? Kickstarter took a chunk, you know, they take 5% and then Stripe takes about 3%, you know, say it's like eight to 9% overall that is going to be subtracted out. So we ended up getting 280 something thousand actually into the bank account. And after that, I immediately, I did a couple of things. Number one, I had a home equity line of credit that I had been racking up to pay for art and other things like that. I think, thankfully I didn't have any, you know, credit card debt from, from this, but I would, I spent a lot to get the art to where it was to get the all, I mean, everything, all the prototyping and that was kind of the bank that I was using to pay for art. So when the Kickstarter funded and it was delivered in, I immediately paid that off. And that was kind of like my art expenses and, and everything factored in. The The next thing I did was I I paid off all of the marketing expenses. I had uh, things like backer kit, Facebook. I st- And then uh, from then on, I uh, the only things that we took out were related to the actual um, you know, manufacturing of the miniatures and, and things like that. So it's definitely enough money to get it made and, and, and to be profitable and that kind of thing. To answer your original question, you know, how much was it profitable? Yes, it was. It definitely was profitable. And the second thing was, I'm not looking to get paid necessarily. What I really want to do is I want to set up a second project with this. And instead of paying out of my home equity line of credit, I would like to use the funds that we earned to pay for the art and and other things like that. And you know, in the end if we have to dip into our home equity line of credit again to, you know, maybe we really want to do more pre-marketing or something. I think I did like $6,000 of pre-marketing and that was all we could afford. So what I'm what I'm hearing is is profitable but when you work out the amount of work and effort that went into it, it wouldn't be prof- profitable if you were doing it just as a one-off and you're trying to 
make some money, make it into a living in regards just to the one Kickstarter. Right. It, it's a good seed to actually start a business, but it is a really poor return on investment if this was the only, say if this was the only place it was going to go. You know, the, the I, I do know people that do like a one, you know, like they, they do a uh, one and done where they just had this idea for a game and they made it and they, they just really wanted to see it come into existence and see their product, you know, enter the world. So they decided on Kickstarter and then they got beat up afterward by all of the logistics and things required to actually make it happen. And they were like, I don't want to do this again. You know, I know people like that, but in general, I would say it was profitable. How profitable? I don't know yet. It's mainly because the biggest unknown is really the shipping and you know, that, that, that would the main variable. So, um, it would be nice if I had more that I could actually take home, but beyond the the fulfillment of this set of games, you know, um, I'll also say one other thing that when I make an order for games, uh, it's looking like I could probably get all my stuff fulfilled if I did like 3,500 games. If I had my manufacturer manufacture 3,500 games and ship them out, I could get all of my orders fulfilled. And that would happen, you know, we'll, we'll say um, well within the budget, right? But if I, let's say, upped it to 5,000 games, I would get a better price on the products. It would eat up all of my money. I would have nothing, like no, uh, we'll say, extra funding left over. But very importantly, I would have 1,500 units that I would get to sell afterward. So... I'm that's that's really what I would like to do. It's kind of my intent. I would like to, um, you know, produce so that I can have product when it actually hits the market and people want to buy it. I want to have product that can be sold. Um, I haven't finalized anything with distribution yet. I have a bunch of retailers that have placed orders, but um, but that's that's kind of uh, it from that front. But I, I think that that's kind of an important thing to think about is your margin when we're talking about margin, you know, how was it profitable is, is really the key question that you asked. Um, you know, you've got your revenue times whatever margin you've got. And let's say my margin was probably about 50% or maybe 40% in, at the end of the day, um, where, you know, $300,000, the amount that could actually go to the company, you know, was probably about 150000 and that would be spent, you know, manufacturing games to sell and, you know, to pay. It's actually, I would say, like, maybe 100K. So manufacturing extra games to sell and paying for future art, that's where, that's about where I think it will land. But it's just, it's just kind of educated guess right now. So Mar- margin, um, you know, plays a really big, big role in this. And shipping can really eat into that margin. I, I know um, you're going to be shipping out games all over the world. Is there any way you can save money on shipping? Or is it pretty much just a static cost that you're just stuck with? So the, the rough part is that um, per container. So let's say China is where the game is going to get manufactured. China will make or let's just say have the, uh, the shipping container. I fill that shipping container. They're going to charge me a certain amount for the shipping container. I can't, if the container's full, I'm not going to be able to put any more into that container. So it's not an expense that it's a variable expense that increases 
along with my production order. So if I let's let's just say keep it simple, I can fit about thirty nine hundred or four four thousand games into a container. That container is going to cost at the moment up to thirty five thousand dollars for that one container. Crazy, right? So if I manufactured four thousand five hundred games, the extra five hundred games would have to go into another container. So it would it would only make sense if I were to instead of manufacturing four thousand, I would potentially manufacture eight thousand, so that the container could I could use the container as efficiently as possible. Now there are other there are other options and and things that I'll be doing. For example, uh, palletizing the game. Pallets are basically you know, when you, your games are wrapped up nicely on top of a pallet. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> a pallet. They're transported really easily and they don't, they're not going to fall over and, and that kind of thing. I actually am thinking about saving money by putting more games in that, in, in that container. Uh, and I'm going to do that by not palletizing the games. So I can actually fit instead of it's 3,960 games in a container. I can fit closer to 6,000 um, in a single container by not palletizing. This basically means that the games are packed loosely, but if they're packed, if it's, if it's fully packed, then there's going to be probably a little bit of damage. But in the end, the damage is, you know, of, you know, lost product is probably going to be much less than the amount of uh, money that we save by just using a um, uh, you know a container more efficiently because thirty five thousand dollars versus let's just say even a hundred games get damaged it's going to be uh, you know a hundred times whatever the manufacturing cost is ten or or sixteen dollars. Um, well, are these ga- are these games individually like packaged or are they just like loose? Sitting around the pallet in the rough sea. I, I can imagine, like yeah. you know, like five million meeples just uh, loosely <laughs> all over the uh, sea container. Uh, yeah, yeah, it, it definitely would cause a little bit more labor and all that. No, no, the games would be packaged and individually shrink wrapped. But beyond that, they they would not be put in boxes or whatever. They'd just be in, individual games stacked one on top of another until the the box uh, until the container got entirely full. Um, this can be a huge problem if you buy only half of a container. Let's say half of the container are your board games and the other half are gigantic barbecues or something. Like the barbecues will just wreak havoc on all your games and and crush them. So yeah, so that's definitely something to consider. But yeah, the I mean, right now, as far as margin, this is where a lot of board game companies are really suffering. Any company that has to transport from China right now is going to be paying outrageous rates for shipping a single container it used to be three thousand dollars a container and now it's over thirty thousand there's no relief in sight until like beginning of next year is what they're anticipating uh i mean even for board games like things that were um a dollar a game are now for me like practically four dollars a game to get things you know through and an expense like that it, it really hurts your margin you know, depending on how you're selling stuff, that might be more than your profit on a game. So, you know, obviously if you sell direct, you get better numbers, but you know, if I sell, let's say a hundred dollar game to a distributor, I'm getting $40 and I have to cover all the expenses in that $40. So that's the manufacturing and the shipping and everything like that. Uh, let's just say it's, you know, 20 bucks on a, or $22 on a really good day. Uh, I make 18 
you know, in theory, but the distributor, you know, if, you know, if I have to pay $4 instead of one or $5 instead of one, it's going to be pretty cost prohibitive, you know, other ways to like improve your margin, the most common way. And this is another area that sometimes we end up advising people. If you make your product inefficiently, like if you include more cards than you need to, if you include more bits in the game than you need to, you know, you're going to pay unnecessary fees. And then in addition to that, think about like how to make your game more efficient. You know, one other thing that you can do, and this is actually something that some of my clients have done, we're shipping worldwide to six regions and we cannot afford six full containers. Obviously, we, you know, to Australia, we're not going to need like a full container for Australia, but we have, you know, several hundred games that are going to go to Australia. And we are actually considering potentially just air shipping games so that way you skip all of the you know freight nonsense with the i mean all that expense and whatnot but um air freight is going to be way more expensive like per game it's just going to be overall like instead of spending 30 grand on shipping you're going to spend like 2500 but you're only going to be sending like 30 games i mean you're going to spend like a hundred dollars a copy or something Uh, but it's going to be way less expensive overall than the nightmare which is freight so it's in a way, some of our clients have actually decided to kind of cut their losses to places like Australia or, you know, some people like the EU, they're like, hey, I'm just going to air freight the games to like fulfill the backers orders. And then I'm not going to ship anything more to those locations. So you have people that are actually saying, you know, I'm only doing the US. I'm not shipping to the EU. I'll do the US and Canada uh, because it's like, one gigantic, very expensive container, you know, and then you're not going to have to spend anything more on freight. And that's all the time we have for this week's episode of Crowdfunding Nerds. If you like this uh, episode, uh, feel free to rate us on your favorite crowdfunding podcast app, Apple, Spotify, Google, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And visit our website at crowdfundingnerds.com to view our previous episodes. And that's all the time we have for this week. Make sure you all stay nerdy. And we'll see you next week. Adios.